Thanks, Kristen. All right, before we get started, I really appreciate you doing announcements. Um, I wanted to invite Rachel uh, Rowden up. And um, she is our uh, admin person, but we're relieving her of her duties. So please don't talk to her about admin. It sounds like you're firing I'm trying to help you not get, you know, I'm trying to take away expectations from others of you. So you're not working after you're done. But um, Rachel got a full-time job. She's going to be um, helping out with homeschool kids, doing case management. So we're really thankful for that. But I, I'm very, very sad because this is the hardest job of our church. And uh, she's just really shown up every day. Every time we did staff meeting on Sundays, she's always shown up. And um, not just her body, but her heart has always been uh, so open and willing to serve me and to serve our community, and I'm so thankful for Rachel. Um, you know, Jonathan's also been, become a good friend of mine, and then Avery and Thane. I mean, we're just so blessed to have their family. I remember when they first came to Renew, I was just like begging God for them to stay, and now I got to work with her, uh, with Rachel. So do you, do you have anything to share? I can pray for you, or I didn't prepare you for this part. No, <laughs> just confession, how? Uh... <laughs> No, I, I think there's so many um, interns and new staff. So I think it's actually going to be functioning even better because there's going to be like single people focusing on one area. So I'm actually really excited. I'm excited to just be like a normal member and not have a lot of responsibility on Sunday. <laughs> um, <laughs> come at 1030, maybe late, you okay. know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, none of you are ever late, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, thank you. And, and please, if you think of me, pray for me, because it's a new job, and apparently it's, like, kind of overwhelming, so just that I'll do well. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I volunteer you to uh, babysit for Rachel. Yes. yes, and her kid is a ball. So, anyways, if you want to play with kids, yeah. hang out with uh, um, their family. God, thank you so much for Rachel. Um, for Jonathan, for Avery, for Thane, Lord, uh, what a precious family they are. I just love uh, the way Rachel carries uh, her responsibility, that she does it with uh, joy and strength. Um, there's so many moments where I've looked up to her, and there's so many moments where she's ministered to me and Nina and just have cared for us, and I'm just so grateful for who she is and uh, the spirit she brings to our church, and would you continue to bless her, Lord, provide for their family, uh, just pray a blessing over them, Lord, that you would continue just to open great paths for them. Help them to accomplish all the dreams that you have for them, Lord. And we're just so grateful to have, uh, to just be in fellowship with them, Lord. And even though, um, you know, she's not doing admin for us, I'm so grateful to have her as a sister, to uh, do Bible study with her, and to have a friend. And um, yeah, would you continue to Bless them, uh, all the ways that they've blessed us, Lord, would you pour back into their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I-Lauren got you flowers. Aww, I texted her. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. Yeah. Uh, God bless. Good to see you. Okay, awkward. Okay, I'll work on that part. We'll practice that. All right, so, um, oh, there's the video again. So getting to my slides. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. We're done. We got this. All right. So uh, we're in Matthew, and we try to intro our time together with a question. And so if you're here for a first time, we really love 
being able to interact and pray for each other. I know it's a weird Sunday thing. And so if you guys could just break off into groups of twos and threes, make sure, you know, you look around and meet someone for the first time. But what is the weightiest thing that you are or were in charge of, like a responsibility that was really heavy. When we were doing children's ministry, Philip talked about putting a card together for one of his clubs. And he's like, if I misconnected some valves, um, you know, it could just break down and, and hurt the driver. Uh, Faith was talking about being a lifeguard and how deep that responsibility is as they're watching kids swim and trying to drown each other, right? So what is something heavy that you've had to hold, whether for your family, for your workplace, for the church? We'll spend a few minutes on this question, and I'll come back and we'll tackle the passage together. All right, look for a person or two to share with. All right, I think for me, definitely Liam's one of the heaviest things I carry, not just because he's a bulky, super fat baby. Um, so a lot of parents talk about sleep training their kids, which means that you have your kid sleep by themselves. Nina accused me of sleep training Liam where he can only sleep next to me. That's how I've sleep trained him. He only, we only do co-sleeping. But I remember when I found out that we were having a baby, we weren't, we weren't intending to have Liam. Uh, we were actually wanting to wait a year because Nina was in the middle of occupational therapy grad school. So we're thinking, oh, she'll graduate in like December, we'll get a job January, February, and then try for a baby. So a year before that, February 14th, wine, and then I'm like, oops, I should be fine, and then like a month later, she's like, I'm feeling a little nauseous, I'm like, we should be fine, and then, you know, she, we do a pregnancy test, and so this one line means not pregnant, and two lines means pregnant, does that make sense? So she was finished her test, she's like, I think I'm okay, and then she goes to work, and I look at the test, and it's like this line which means like super pregnant, <laughs> you know, because it, it makes, this is what makes this X, and it means super pregnant. So I remember walking around with a stick around my neighborhood, like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But I really meant, oh my God. I didn't say that in a disrespectful way. I meant, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And, I, and just the weight of having a baby that I didn't expect was enormous. I mean, I felt like I was going to have a nervous breakdown. I tried to call Nina and she wouldn't pick up. So I'm just kind of on my own holding like this, this uh, thing that is happening whether we want it to or not. And you know, it, I wasn't able to articulate it at the time, but all of us parents feel this way. The weight of a child is, I think about it like this. If I become a better person, if I'm kinder, if I'm more mature, my wife uh, if I'm a better man, my wife will have a better life. Like, she'll be happier. Well, our marriage will be healthier. But my child, if I'm unhealthy, will become an unhealthy person, right? If I'm unhealthy, my wife won't be as happy. Our marriage will be unhealthy. But if I'm healthy, my child will be healthier. If I'm a better man, my child will be a better man. It, it impacts him and who he becomes, not just how he experiences life. And that was huge. Uh, we're having another baby in November, and I feel like, you know, Liam's alive and doing well, so it's, it's not as bad. But we, as parents, just constantly feel this, this pressure 
of shaping another human. And then I think the second way in which I, I feel like I'm heavily carrying something with other leaders of our church. So when we look at our church, our pastors are Pastor Chrissy, who shepherds our young adults, and Pastor Dave, who pastors our families, and, and Nina, who pastors our children, and myself. So we are the pastors of Renew. We carry this heavy responsibility. And then our leadership also carries this responsibility. So that's myself, Jonathan, and, and Dave alongside of our wives, right? Nina, Kristen, and Joanne. And, Joanne. and so when I read this passage, there's something really um, weighty about it. It says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for this would be of no benefit for you. So there's this responsibility that us as shepherds and leaders have, as pastors have, for your soul, that we are to watch over it. And, and we do that in different ways. We do that through our doctrine, the way that we teach. Are we allowing the Bible to speak authoritatively and clearly? Are we allowing the Bible to be taught accurately so that people aren't led to poor doctrine? And then there's a relational piece. There's a piece in which I'm trying to attend to your soul, especially if you let me know you're walking through something. I or other shepherds want to walk through it with you. There's a family side of shepherding. And then there's like this management side, right, where I'm trying to help you uh, serve and challenge you to steward your spiritual gifts. There's a part of me that maybe wants you to t take a step back so you could focus on your soul because that will actually help you sp grow spiritually. There's parts of shepherding that means confronting you of your sin and saying, hey, if you continue doing this, your spiritual life will be damaged. You'll be separated from the Lord. And, and um, you're not going to be able to be a healthy part of community. And so there's a really big responsibility when it comes to leading at a church. And I'm really grateful for the people I get to do that with. Now, we all have these kinds of weights on us in different ways. Whether, again, for the stories you shared in your family, in your occupation, maybe carrying a friend who's walking through depression or anxiety and shouldering that burden with them, there's weight upon us. And when we look at this passage in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, if you have your Bibles, you could turn there with me. 21 or 22, let's skip ahead. 22, I'm sorry. We're, as a church, we're walking through the book of Matthew. We're kind of at this last leg. And in this section, he's often confronting the Pharisees and the Jews through these parables. Now, the reason why he shares a parable, it says, listen to another parable. Jesus doing this teaching among, at the temple. He uses parables because he's talking to a mixed audience. When he speaks to his disciples, he's very clear. Uh, he's precise. He's direct. If you think about the Sermon on the Mount, he gives exactly his expectation for kingdom life. What it means to forgive. What it means to uh, carry the Beatitudes in your heart. The way that you pray in private versus praying in public. He's very clear. Now, when he talks to a mixed crowd, he uses parables, right? A mixed crowd means that there's people out to get him. There's the Pharisees and t teachers of the law trying to pin him on a statement to say, you're not, 
you're blaspheming, or you should be imprisoned for that, or you should be discredited. So if you think about our political climate, we're often seeing people try to pin someone on their words, right? So there's people like that in the crowd. Then there's his disciples who are, who are interested and learning and trying to understand the kingdom. They've given their allegiance to him. And then in the middle, there's a crowd. The crowd are people who are undecided, and they've kind of come with mixed motives. Some of them come because they want some bread and fish, you know, and they hear it's like a handout. Or they come because they want to see a miracle. Or they themselves are suffering from an ailment. But they haven't fully aligned themselves with Jesus. And they're wondering whether he's truly the Christ. Now, what a parable does is it's kind of this clouded way of sharing truth. And the cloutedness allows for maybe a tax to be less direct. You can't really quote a parable and pin it on someone. But more so, it filters the heart. Those who are interested in truth, those who have a tender heart towards Jesus, they'll understand it and they'll want more. They'll seek deeper. Those who are there to be entertained, they'll hear a parable and get bored and kind of walk away. So it's this filter for the crowd, for those who want to be disciples versus those who want to be entertained versus those who want to attack Jesus. Now, this parable is really amazing because it sums up, in many ways, all of Jewish history, this transition with Christ into what we're doing now as a church. It's like this, this short little parable is putting together really the kingdom of God in in Jewish history all the way to the church. Let's read this together. Or let me read it to you. I'm a bad reader. If we try to read it together, you know, it's, it's not going to be pretty. Listen to another parable. There is a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put up a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants mistreated or treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. Uh, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretched to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his sh share of the crop at harvest time. So this is a pretty easy parable to understand. There's an owner who made like an amazing vineyard, right? All the bells and whistles. If you ever wanted to purchase a vineyard, it would look like this. It has an outer wall to protect from animals. Uh, it has a wine press to process the grapes. It has a watchtower to defend um, that property to see in, for, for a distance. And then he rents them out to tenants who, instead of seeing themselves as stewards of the vineyard, takes unlawful ownership of it. And as the owner's sending different uh, servants to collect his fair share of the crops, they were beaten, they were killed, he sends his son, they do the same thing to him. And then he asks the people in the crowd, what do you think the owner will do? 
And they basically said, he's going to come and dismantle the tenants, drive them out, maybe kill them, probably for killing his son, and then find rightful tenants to take their place. So what is this passage about? The vineyard is the kingdom of God, and in many ways represents Israel's stewardship of it. But the kingdom of God has taken form in lots of different ways. So we have Eden as God's kingdom, the perfect kingdom, where you had everything you wanted to eat, where you had a specific purpose, where your body didn't break down. It was called the pleasure of God, right? When you resided in Eden, you experienced the perfect kingdom of God. He ruled and reigned, and everyone was blessed. We had perfect relationships with one another. So Adam and Eve were naked because there was a sense that they wouldn't hurt each other, that they could be vulnerable, that they could be completely open. And once sin happened, they put on clothes because now we hurt each other. Now we take advantage of each other. Now there's distance between who I am and who you really are. And so when sin enters the world, it disrupts this perfect kingdom where God rules. But God is always after building his kingdom with his people. And so we have his promise to Abraham, how out of his line, out of his lineage, he will create a nation and he will have this nation bless other nations. Then he has sons and they have sons and they end up in Egypt through like, you know, the technicolor dream coat of Joseph, right? Remember that? He goes and he helps out a pharaoh, but then the other pharaoh forgets about him. But Israel's increasing in numbers by the thousands, but they're just slaves. Until Jesus, uh, God delivers them from Egypt, he puts them on Mount Sinai, and he makes a group of slaves his citizens. He gives them a law to rule them, and he himself is their king and their God. And then he gives them a, a land to rule. He gives them Canaan. So now the kingdom of God, kind of like Eden, has a specific land that is occupied where you could point to a place on the map and you can say God's kingdom is here. He rules here. The temple is here. His people are here. Isn't that a cool thing? I wish we still had that in some ways, right? I wish we could be like, oh, if you travel to that country, you could visit God's kingdom. He's, he's chilling there. He's ruling there. His people are there. Wouldn't that be awesome? And that's, that's what it looked like. God resided in his temple when they were worshiping and doing things the right way. There was a time where his, his presence came so thickly that everyone hit their knees. And it says the, the old men were weeping and the young men were dancing. You can approach the temple and feel the very presence of God. And then the people were ruled justly. It didn't matter where you were in the social class. There was justice for you. If you were indebted and, and you couldn't make ends meet, in seven years, your debts would be erased and you could be free again. If you were an immigrant, there was food left on the field for you to harvest. And, the, and God told his people, remember, you were once immigrants in a foreign land. Treat them how, you, how I have treated you, how you want to be treated. And so there was justice for everyone. And people were treated well. And, and they were so different from other nations. And then also they were prosperous. When Solomon ruled, there was like silver on the ground. And they're like, ah, it's just silver. 
No one does that in the ancient world, right? It's like being that guy that's so rich that you dropped a $100 bill and you're like, it's not worth my time to pick up. It's like that life, you know? Israel was living that life where they had plenty. And also their armies were invincible. And it didn't matter what, what, what the ratios were and who they were standing against. When God was with them, when they were doing it right, when, when God was reigning Israel, they had nothing to be afraid of. They came at armies with a, a torch and a, and a trumpet, right? Other times the s- sun stood still. They knew that God was winning their battles for them. When they were about to enter Canaan, Gabriel himself showed up and talked to Joshua. And Joshua said, are you for us or are you against us? And he's probably scared because Gabriel's an archangel, right? And Gabriel's like, I'm for the Lord. But the Lord is, is, is with you, right? And so we have this really beautiful picture of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, what his kingdom looks like. And that's the vineyard that was entrusted to Israel. But again and again, throughout Israel's history, we see them not live up to the glory of being good stewards of God's kingdom. We see glimpses of it, and and we often remember back to Solomon and David, who weren't perfect, but really was the vision of what Israel was meant to be. But most of its history was them chasing idols. Most of their history was them sinning against God. Most of their history was prophets coming in and saying, you're not stewarding God's kingdom correctly. You're worshiping other gods and them killing them and beating them and dismissing them. And so that's where the story begins. There's this beautiful vineyard of God's kingdom. God entrusts it to Israel and the religious leaders, but they do ill. They are good stewards. And then finally, he sends his son. And in John chapter 1, verses 11, it's, it says that he came to that which, is, which was his own, but his own did not recognize him. Isn't there such a relational draw there? It's like if I came back to renew in five years and no one, no one knew who I was. No one cared about me. No one cared where I went. Or if I came to a family reunion, they, they are my people and no one recognized me. Right? Jesus does this with his people. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not recognize him. So that's the story of this owner sending his son over and them beating and killing him. And the passage kind of ends with, with that very uh, statement. Jesus says to them, have you not read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Anyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone whom it falls, it will will be crushed. And then, um, mm, okay, therefore I tell you, that the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. Uh, sorry, I put this same verse here. Anyone whom this stone, who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone whom it falls will be crushed. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable. They knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So what is this passage saying here? 
um, what does it mean for Jesus to say he's the cornerstone, and yet if someone falls on him or he falls on them, they will be crushed? What Jesus is saying is that he is the cornerstone of a building, right, of this religious, um, of, of all of these religious rites and rituals he's the centerpiece of. And he was the centerpiece of the whole Jewish religious system as well. They just didn't see it. He was the lamb that was going to be sacrificed. He was the temple, right, that carried the presence of God. He was the very word of God that as they gathered around the Torah, they were gathering around Jesus. He was the centerpiece, the cornerstone of the religious system. And everything the religious system was doing was supposed to be leaning on the cornerstone, attached to the cornerstone. It's like if this whole uh, building was attached to that pillar in the middle, right? Everything leaned on it. It's what bears all of the weight. If you remove this pillar, the whole thing collapses. If you remove this pillar, everything is, is, is flattened. And that's what Jesus was saying about the Jewish uh, system at the time, that they have removed the cornerstone. And everything they do is flat. Their prayers are flat. God's not hearing them. It's just a show for people. The temple is flat. It's not built on Christ. It's emptied. It's just, it's just a, a build, another building. Their laws are flat. It doesn't honor God. It actually puts people away from the presence of the Lord. That if they did this right, everything would be leaning on Jesus. And I'm wondering if we're doing our spirituality right. I'm wondering if everything we do is leaning and putting weight on who Jesus is. Or are we just kind of going through the motions? I remember I was, uh, I, I, I was super annoyed one day because I picked up my phone and I had it charging the whole night. And it, it, was still, it went from like 4% to 1%, right? Have you ever done that? You pick up your phone, you're like, it's dead. And now my whole day is dead. And, of course, I'm, like, angry at the cord. I bought it off of Amazon, three bucks. Of course, it's not going to work. I was looking at whether it plug, I misplugged it into the phone. But the cord was okay. It was plugged into the phone. It was even plugged into the little cube. But my problem was that the cube wasn't plugged into the wall, right? So, of course, it's me and not the robots. Um, and I think in the same way, we can check all these spiritual boxes. We're opening up God's word every week with people. We're serving him. We're praying. But are we doing all of this outside of really plugging into loving Jesus? Like when we open the word, is it kind of just about me finding more purpose, being a better dad? And in, instead of like, where is Jesus here? And how is it that every time I open up the word, I can find more of who God is and fall in love with him deeper. Because if we open up the word for any other reason, we're just, we're, we're flat. You know, we're not building off of the cornerstone. When we pray, is it about our agenda? How our life is going? What we need from the Lord? Or are we leaning our whole prayer on Jesus and saying, God, how do I love you more and know your will? How do I commune with you? How do I waste time with you? And just sit in your presence because I love being with you. That it would be our cornerstone. When we come into church, is it to just hang out with friends and wait for lunch? Is it to, you know, find our soulmates? Or is it because we want to love Jesus? We're expecting to leave the room connecting to the Lord. 
Because when we don't do those things, when we remove the cornerstone, our spiritual life is flattened out. And worse than that, Jesus is saying that when, when we like serve him or pray or worship and we're not doing it with him, that he actually judges all of those motives and intentions. And he does that again and again with the Pharisees, right? He's crushing them. He's crushing their spiritual life. He's saying, you're praying, but it means nothing. You're doing all these laws that you think are righteous, but your heart's evil. He crushes them again and again. He pronounces judgment over them. In fact, in the, in the next chapter, there's all these woes that he proclaims against the religious leaders. That's what it means that the cornerstone, if you don't lean on it, it's going to lean and crush you. That your spirituality will be nothing if it's not connected to Jesus. There's this really cool, um, I don't know if it's a cool passage. There's this passage where he kind of, um, where God is saying that he's gathering all of our works, right? All of our spiritual acts, all of the good works that we do. And it's like, it's like wood and straw and stone and precious metal. And then, like, when, when I hung out with that foster kid, it's in there. Me preaching today is in there, right? You being nice to your friend, it's in there. All the good works that you do. If you've ever watched A Good Place, all the good works, right? Put in a pile, and then it's a bonfire. God lights it up. And what he's doing is he's showing what we've done in our lives that's for us versus him. And only the things that we've done with Jesus on the cornerstone, only the things we've done because we love him and we love others, that's what will remain. And what he's saying is that when I burn up everything the Pharisees has done, there's nothing left. I wonder when we think about our service to God, our position at a church, the way we, the way we gift him our life, the way we do our spirituality, is it for us? Is our spiritual life a tandem for us to be happy and to be fulfilled and to get what we want? Or is everything we're doing wrapped, leaning on, connected to Jesus? You know, I, it's hard to know at the end, right? I can't judge your motives. I could barely examine my own. But as best as we can, we need to say, Jesus, I want everything I do for you. And when we do that, there's a joy there's a love that grows inside of us. Maybe that's my biggest tell of whether you should be doing less ministry or more ministry. Is, is there joy in you? When you're doing it, do you love others more and do you love the Lord more? Or are you becoming more bitter and angry? Are you judging others and distancing yourself? You know, we're all great stewards of our spiritual life. We are all the landowner. We are all the new tenants. And, and, and God's entrusted us with, with a lot of things, right? He's asking us to bear fruit. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, the Jewish nation, from you, Israel, and will be given to people who will produce its fruits. That's us, okay? That's us and all the big Christian church around the world. And I think about the ways that we, over 22,000 years, has produced fruit. That when Jesus told his disciples to go to all the nations and to make disciples, 
Generations of Christians were faithful to doing that. 2,000 years of Christians were faithful in doing that. When you look at other religions, they're concentrated, right? 80 to 90% of Islam, the green, is in the Middle East. 80 to 90% of Buddhism is in Southeast Asia. 80 to 90% of Hinduism resides in India and some, some South um, Asian countries. 80% and 90% of Judaism is in Israel. But we see that the disciples of Christ take God's kingdom, and instead of it being like Israel with boundaries and barriers, it becomes a kingdom of hearts, right? It resides inside of us. And wherever we go, the kingdom of God is. And we've gone all around the world, and then we've regathered at these things called churches. And God commands us to do that. He says, you can't grow and be effective and serve my kingdom unless you're a part of a church. Most of the New Testament scripture is addressing churches and how to do church well. So we come together, and we as individuals are part of his kingdom, but we as a community are to be like Israel, right? Or to be like Eden, where we are ambassadors. Uh, we are kind of home here. I remember I went to Singapore, and I wasn't home because I'm American. I'm American through and through, right? And I, I go there, and I'm in theology class, and I ask questions, and people are like, oh, you don't ask questions. When you ask questions, it means the teacher didn't communicate correctly or he's wrong. Those are the two, those are two things that, that they assume when you ask a question. Me and my friend was too loud at a bus. Someone wanted to report us, right? I just didn't fit in. I didn't know how to be Singaporean because I'm American. I carry my American values, as obnoxious as they are, everywhere I go. I come back a year later. I'm sitting at customs. This worker's trying to get everyone to be in a single file line and not have any gaps. And like everyone complains about it, right? Under their breath or out loud. And I'm like, I'm home again. I'm home. So good. So good to be home. I wonder if we feel like foreigners until we come together. That there's a part of us when we're in the world where we're like, I'm here as an ambassador. I'm here kind of traveling to a foreign country where people talk about women differently than I do. People talk about marriage with a different lens, right? People have different work ethics here. Their language is different. How they find fulfillment is different, and that's okay. I'm called to be with them. But why we gather together is because we get to be home here. It's not a perfect home. It's not a kingdom home, but it is home. And we share our values. We share uh, what, how the Lord has called us to live, what he's called us to do, and we do it together. God's given us a really heavy task to be his kingdom, his body on this earth, and then to bless the people around us through his body as well. You know, I went to three different uh, colleges the last two weeks to preach, and I've been promoting Renew. And I said, you know, this is our church calendar. Isn't it cool that on Mondays we take care of kids who have suffered domestic violence? On Tuesday, we mentor at-risk youth. On a monthly basis, we dance with people who, are, who have special needs or do a movie night, or we have a Halloween event. We need help, by the way, at all of these things. So if you're not doing anything, serve here first. Um, we have dinner with foster adults. Every year, I would love for half of our church to go to a foster kids camp. Right now, we have four to six people who go a year. And I've seen our church 
as I think about our five years, extend ourselves again and again into community and build out God's kingdom. Because isn't that what God's kingdom looks like? That if God's kingdom ruled on earth, I think there would be dances for, foster need, for special needs kids. I think that foster kids would have a home to ha come and have dinner with people. That those who don't have good mentors in their life would find some. Those are all tangible ways in which we see God's kingdom being built out through our community. People hearing the gospel for the first time in the colleges close to us. But also I think about the ways in which our church can grow. You know, there's really beautiful parts of our church. But I think there's some um, toxic parts as well. That as our leaders have a responsibility to care for your souls, you have a responsibility, right, to not be a burden, uh, to, su to submit to authority. And, and there's a heavy responsibility there. And we, if you do it well, we get to do this family well. If you do it well, other, more people will be served. But if you come in with a critical eye and a critical voice and a critical lens, if you're not able to have the right conversations with the right people in a humble way, then this starts getting hurt. And, and we aren't able to function as a family. We become unhealthy. You know, that's one of the greatest threats to any organization. It's not external. External threats kind of bring a country together. Like, I'm more afraid for our country, the U.S., now than I was at 9-11. At 9-11, we knew who our enemy was, and we came together to, to combat it, for good or bad. Now, we are each other's enemies. When I think about our church, there's seasons where we're not fighting Satan on his turf. We're just fighting in-house. I think one of the best ways to do that, at least at this church, is to say, who are our leaders and shepherds? And how do we um, defer to their, their voice, um, their direction, and their leadership? How do we stop criticism and say, hey, if you, if you have a problem, you need to talk to him. Talk to Wilson. Talk to Jonathan. Do it m many times. Because I see that corroding some of, the, some of our, our culture. And, and we kind of came in like that. We, we've had a few years where people just feel really entitled to say whatever they want about our leadership in our church. Kind of like critiquing, a, doing a Yelp review. You know, just, just be super blunt and, and dishonoring and it doesn't matter what you say. Well, it matters here because God's established this church and it's his bride and he cares about it. And us doing this well where we have confidence in our leaders and speak like that, where we submit to their authority, where we aren't a burden to them, that allows us to be a church that carries our greater burden, right, of extending God's kingdom. You know, um, God's been teaching me how to submit. It sounds like a bad word, but it's really, uh, biblically, it's not. Actually, I think it brings great joy. Let me give you a quick example. If we all went on vacation, we'd be way angrier at each other and way less joyful than if we all did a mission trip. I guarantee it, right? Because if we said, hey, let's all go on vacation together, everyone would have like a different place you want to go. If we all decided where to go, we would have a different place we want to sleep and fight for our, the, our bed. And then we would, every meal, we would be angry. Because, like, I want pokey, and you want steak, and she wants lobster. Because 
we're on vacation and it's about me. It's about what I get to do, what I want, what makes me happy. But if we were a mission team and we said, we want to serve these people and it's about them, we walk away with such deep joy because we've let go of our wants and entitlements and what we get or don't get to do. And so when I went to the foster kids camp, that's what God taught me, right? You go in, you're not a pastor here, you're not a leader here. There's a counselor that's above you in your own cabin. So you're like, you're like second tier to like the bottom tier. And I went in like, hey, I surrender my week here. I'm your servant. That's why I basically I told my counselor on day one, whatever you need, just ask me. I will do it. So I cleaned pee. I took kids to the bathroom. I sat with, uh, everyone wanted to go swimming, and sometimes I would rotate out and do crafts and just sit in the sun and bake, right? Um, and and we, I just went to serve. And then now I get, after the Royal Family Kids Camp, you get to mentor the foster kids, which is like a crazy thing to be able to spend month after month with them for a whole day. And so I shared a lot of stories about Zach, uh, especially, and I just really wanted to mentor Zach. He got moved five times in nine months to different group homes and different foster families. I mean, it's devastating for a 10-year-old. I remember when he came out of a bus, right? He just looked like a thug. He, he just had the straight face. He didn't look happy to be there. He didn't like our welcome tunnel where we give everyone high fives, right? And I'm just like praying, God, would you be with this counselor? And he walks straight to me. I'm like, oh, man, this is going to suck. And then over the course of a week, I just saw his walls break down how sweet he was. And we just attached to each other. I remember saying goodbye. I was so sad. And so this opportunity of mentoring came up, and I was like, I really want Zach. And basically, the coordinator says, you can't have him because he lives too far, and uh, we can't get his brother in the program. I was like, all right, well, that sucks. And she's like, do you still want to do it? I was like, well, I feel like I want to surrender myself to the leadership and to the program. So I gave her a list of seven other kids, and I couldn't have any of them either. Same reasons, right? They didn't have permission to go. They lived too far. They already had a mentor. And she's like, do you still want to do it? And again, another re-surrender. And at this point, I, walked to, I went to her. I said, I will do anything because the Lord's called me to be here. I, I can grab pizza for you. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever you need. And so we sat down. She still wants me to be a mentor. We worked through all the kids that are left, which is a sad thing to say. And then Zach came up again. And I was like, man, I really wanted Zach. And I shared some of my story with her. And she's like, well, he lives really far. And I said, I'm willing to drive. You know, it's about an hour commute each way um, uh, when I pick him up and drop him off. And she's like, okay, if I find another counselor, you could have Zach. And basically, she found another counselor to help out with Zach's brother to drive down with me. I went to his group home a couple of days ago. I met his, um, his guardians. I met the other kids there. I got to play some basketball. And I, again, just fell in love with him. I want so bad to tell him at the end of camp, camp that I, I want to see you, that I hope to do mentoring with you. And they said, don't say that because you cannot keep that promise. I was like, ah. But when I saw him, I got to say it. I got to say it. And the first meeting we have, by the way, it's not Nina's birthday, poor thing. Um, sorry, babe. Um, is you sign a covenant with your kids saying you're going to show up for nine months and, and, and be together. But actually, if I got him right when I wanted him, my heart wouldn't be as in a good a place as it is now, right? I would have walked in like, oh, of course I got Zach, and now I get to 
kind of do what I always wanted to do. God puts us in different seasons where he has us continue to surrender to the leadership above us. And it speaks about our heart more than the leadership and how we respond to that, right? It speaks about whether we've come in in a place of humility and surrender or whether we're entitled and it's about us. And I think God's just teaching me in this space how to submit and surrender. And I hope that for those of you who have lesser leadership positions uh, or no leadership here, that there would be a great work God would do for you as you learn to submit and to follow and to honor. That there's, there's great formation he's doing in your soul. And more than what he's doing in and through you, he gets to do something amazing through us. That we get to bear fruit in season because we're together and unified. Because we honor each other. Because we have one vision moving forward and we're saying, hey, there's people and pockets in this community where we want to see God's kingdom manifested. Let's do that together. Maybe there's holes in this church and you're like, I want to fill that hole. Or maybe you have gifts, but you bring them in surrender to the leadership team and just say, hey, how can I be used? I'm willing to do anything, but this is what I'm good at. Zach comes in, by the way, uh, guy in the back, and that's what, he walks in first day. He's like, how can I serve? And we're like, we need someone in AV. And he's faithfully showed up every week to do AV. This isn't a very big church. We're doing a lot. We need a lot of help. <laughs> I would love for you to come and serve with us. Serve in the city. Serve in this community. So much of our fifth year is about that. We're going to highlight all these different ministries. And then we're going to ask you, if you don't have a place to engage the city, engage it with us. We want to do it with you. God has handed the kingdom his kingdom over to us. That's a, that's a big deal. We're stewarding the gospel. We're stewarding people experiencing his reign and rule. And I pray that we would do that well. God, we're so grateful for this church. We've done a lot together. But I pray against the spirit of criticism. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart of honor for our leaders and for this community. That we would guard our mouth, Lord, that through our mouth can be poison and fire, but it can also be life. I pray that we would choose to speak into the church, into our brothers and sisters here, into the leadership, words of life. That when people leave our conversations, they would come alive for this church instead of feel dead to it. I pray that you would help us guard this community, not for ourselves, but because we are stewarding your kingdom. Because there's people in the city who are hurting and broken and who need your kingdom to touch them. There's people who are wondering about the purpose of life and eternity and they need our, our church to touch them. And also we need each other to build each other up. Would you help us in that, God? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give us uh, a little bit of time to take communion together. And to remember that Jesus was the ultimate servant. He, if anyone had gifts to offer, it was him. But instead, he dies on the cross for us. He lays it all down. And he, he becomes the cornerstone through the cross. That because Jesus died for our sins, we get to be priests and temples. We get to be sons and daughters. 
we get to shoulder his kingdom with deep purpose. As we take communion today, let's do it with him at the cornerstone of our lives because he gave his life for us. And also, we have a prayer team um, in the back and on the side. And it's an amazing thing to be prayed for. We have our best leaders do it. Because our goal is to gift you with a word from the Lord this morning. To pray for the thing that you're holding the heaviest in your heart. And we all have something that we brought, right, this morning that's been difficult. And I'm always feeling like, why aren't there 30 people lined up for prayer? Because there's 100 people in here who need it. And so me and the Changs, um, the Jungs, the Whitmores, we would love to pray for you and to share a word from the Lord with you this morning for your heart. Let's stand together for communion and prayer.